the University of Johannesburg, the future reimagined. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our library podcast on cutting-edge research done at the University of Johannesburg. Today, I am fortunate to welcome Professor Alex Broadbent as my guest, and he is the head of the Institute for the Future of Knowledge at the University of Johannesburg. Professor Broadbent is a specialist in the philosophy of medicine. And so, Alex, I'm going to begin by asking, can you explain to us what the philosophy of medicine is all about? Hi, thank you, Maria. Thank you for having me on here. The philosophy of medicine is really about philosophical questions concerning medicine. So for me, that really means questions about the nature of medicine, what, what medicine itself is, given that it has all these different um, forms, it takes all these different forms in all these different places, um, and what the nature of disease is and what the nature of health is. And those are some of the fundamental questions. A lot of philosophers of medicine also look um, very hard at questions about evidence, um, evidence that something works or doesn't work, because one of the greatest um, sort of mysteries that, that a lot of us encounter in our everyday lives is, you know, whether whether the thing that you just took made your headache go away or whether it would have happened anyway. And then there's also a lot of questions relating um, to, um, to trust and to um, who, which, you know, which, which uh, medical, which supposed medical expert you're going to place your faith in. Um, so it's really quite a broad field, and it's a field that's growing uh, very, very fast. Um, at the moment, I think um, it, it used to be quite a small field, and at the moment, it's, it's, it's becoming really quite a quite a prominent quite a prominent one. So, from what you're saying, you're interrogating uh, questions like, for example, holistic medicine versus Western medicine, and also asking questions about how we actually cure the common cold, because we don't really. We just give people some things to deal with their symptoms. But, I mean, do we really cure the common cold? Yes, I think those are both uh, interesting questions. One of, the, one of the big questions that has troubled me is how you deal with um, the idea of decolonization in relation to medicine. Because on the one hand, um, medicine is obviously strongly culturally imbued. Um, every society throughout history since 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 the agricultural revolution ten or twelve thousand years ago has has, uh, has has had its own medical tradition. Um, but they've differed hugely, and they reflect the metaphysics, the ontology of the day, and, and the religious beliefs and the cultural beliefs. And that remains true. So you you know uh, it, it, you can see how um, telling everybody they've got to uh, follow a certain medical uh, treatment uh, could be culturally insensitive. At the same time, I strongly believe that uh, one cannot be a relativist about medicine. One cannot say, for example, um, African medicine for African people or European medicine for European people. And that's because I believe that fundamentally it's a universal human experience being ill and, and being well. And um, there's a lot of good evidence that suggests that when people are looking for treatments for themselves or for the people they care about, they don't go for uh, the, the treatment from their own culture. They go for, they'll try whatever. They'll try, you know, people will try in, in both uh, Western and non-Western contexts, they'll try treatments from outside of their own culture if they think they might work. Um, and I, so I think we're very, very anti 
uh, anti-nationalistic, if you like, when it comes to uh, what medical treatments will go for. And I think that's one of the biggest questions then is how you how you deal with um, you know these sort of epistemic decolonization ideas in the context of medical knowledge. Thanks, Alex. That's incredibly interesting, and it leads us to debates around how we deal with COVID. Um, worldwide, there's been this idea that we must all go into lockdown. And I see that you've written quite extensively um, arguing that we in South Africa, for example, should have possibly thought differently about lockdown and shouldn't necessarily have done what was um, the right course of action, in inverted commas, for, for example, Europe. Would you like to unpack that a little bit more for us? Absolutely. So what South Africa did initially in response to the threat of COVID-19 was to put in place a very severe set of lockdowns um, at a time when there was really very little COVID um, in the country. And uh, my view at the time was, and it remains, that this just wasn't the right thing to do because um, uh, the costs of doing so uh, were would have been and were very very high. Uh, the benefits relatively low, um, and the effectiveness relatively low. So what I mean by that is, if you imagine locking down a, in, in Geneva, where people can stay home in their nice apartments and get food delivered, that's one thing. You try and imagine locking down in Soweto, where people are living in more crowded conditions. Um, you might have shared ablutions. Um, lots of people in sharing the same space. They've got to leave the room. Uh, leave leave their dwelling to get uh, um, uh, food handouts and so forth. Uh, then it's it's not going to be feasible to lock down for one thing, uh, and it's also um, uh, it's also going to cause a great deal of, of of misery and further health problems. So my feeling was that it was basically a case of a, a one size uh, fits all approach to a public health problem when that wasn't appropriate. What I should say is that the South African COVID pattern has actually had two very distinct waves. And the government, interestingly, followed a completely different strategy for the second wave than it did the first yes. wave. What it did for the second wave was actually basically what I thought it should have done for the first wave. So although there was no announcement that this was happening, in fact, what looks like happened is that basically the <laughs> basically the second time around, the government agreed with the position that I was taking. I'm not saying they knew what I was saying, but they agreed with the substance of that position. Um, and they, they, they didn't do anything like such a severe lockdown, even though the peak was far higher. Um, they only they went as high as level three, which is a, you know, a kind of a mitigation setup, which is what I thought ought to have been done first time round as well. And I'm absolutely sure that the reason for that was the same set of reasons that um, that, that, that I've just cited, you know, to do with the, the, the realities of the situation and what you can do in that in that context. So I actually think the government got it right second time round, uh, but I think they got it wrong the first time round. And I'm very, very confident that that has a great deal to do with uh, basically uh, international pressure and uh, panic. And the, the, you know, I think the African governments were put in a very difficult position um, where really it would have been very hard for them not to have done that, that kind of dramatic lockdown. Um, and, and that's a good example of uh, perhaps of what I was talking about before as well, of a sort of a a case where you perhaps lack a certain kind of decolonization of, of, of medical knowledge. Um, Alex, you know, what you're saying, I think, is so interesting. And when I look at my own research, um, I've seen 
swathes of people becoming unemployed. And I work mainly in poorer communities, and the effect of lockdown has really been quite extraordinary. You and some colleagues wrote a very interesting piece in The Lancet towards the end of last year, arguing that COVID is not an egalitarian um, disease or phenomenon, and rather that the cost of this falls on the poor. Would you like to elaborate more on this for us? Yes, um, that's right. I think lockdown um, is not an egalitarian policy. What lockdown does is it enables effectively focused protection of the rich. And we're actually just about to put out a working paper uh, in which we show this in relation to some suburbs and some townships around Cape Town. So what you can see is that during the first lockdown, which was very hard, there was very little COVID in the southern suburbs. Um, uh, and then in the second uh, 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 wave, there was a lot. And what that tells you is that the lockdown was effective in the suburbs. Um, however, uh, if you look at the neighbouring townships like Kailicha and so forth, you see approximately the same size wave in those two periods. So what that tells you is, unsurprisingly, that that measure, uh, that, that regulation of the level five lockdown was not an effective public health measure um, in the townships, whereas it was in the suburbs. Effectively, what it did was it, 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 it protected people in the suburbs um, from, from COVID-19, uh, but it didn't offer that protection to people in the townships. Um, at, so the, at the same time, the, the, the costs of doing that uh, exercise, the costs of a, of a major lockdown, clearly fall very hard on the poor because poor people uh, are much more likely to be living well, without, um, uh, well, they might have a lack of assets, um, they're living from hand to mouth in some cases. Um, And yeah. Alex, that raises then questions of the effectiveness of lockdown. How do we evaluate that? What sort of measures should we be using? Um, it is an effective lockdown only measured by the number of people who fall ill or don't fall ill? Or are there other measures that we should be taking into account? So I think the the effectiveness of lockdown is something that's been uh, very inadequately studied. And we've tried, um, and there have been some attempts, but there have been very, very few adequate uh, studies of how effective lockdowns really have been. And the evidence that exists is quite mixed. So, um, you know, in some contexts, it seems to have been effective in, globally, but in other contexts, not really very effective. And of course, the, 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 the first thing to do is to, is to be clear about your contrast case. So the contrast is not between lockdown and nothing. The contrast is obviously between lockdown and some set of, you know, less uh, dramatic mitigation measures, which, um, uh, which may offer some benefits uh, against COVID-19, but without stopping normal life in the way that a lockdown does. And the question is then whether that extra benefit you get um, is worth the cost. Uh, of stopping normal life, which can lead to uh, you know very severe, uh, very severe consequences in a in a developing world context. Something I should also say is that the reason that um, the costs of 
locking down falls so heavily on the global poor has to do with the age profile of COVID. So COVID is particularly damaging for people who are older and the global poor are typically younger. The median age in Africa is 19. So half of the African continent, continent is teenage or less. The benefits to teenagers from, from locking down is, is minimal. Um, uh, whereas the cost is huge because it interrupts their education and it interrupts the, 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 their economic prospects for the rest of their lives in various ways. And um, it can directly and indirectly interfere with their health. Uh, malnutrition is a, particularly, a particular problem for under fives, obviously. So the, um, uh, the reason that the costs fall so heavily on the, glo on the global poor um, is largely to do with the fact that the global poor are young. And I strongly believe that if the, uh, you know, if COVID, um, if it weren't the case that COVID threatened people who are really quite powerful uh, and, and threatened uh, leaders, in effect, and, 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 and privileged classes, then we wouldn't be seeing this global response. And there's good evidence for that based on the familiar statistics, the number of people who die every year, the number of children who die every year from preventable causes, including pneumonia, um, which is in some ways COVID-like um, in, in, in Africa. You know, you have 800,000 children under five a year dying of, of pneumonia in Africa, and that's just normal. Um, so I think the, 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 the question, you know, the real, what, what drives, what's driven the response to COVID is not really the number of people it kills, but who it kills. So Alex, you um, touched on what was going to be my last question to you, and um, which I thought was somewhat provocative. In reading your work, I wondered if there was a sort of subtle suggestion here that actually old people in the global north are more important than old people in the global south. But it seems that what you're suggesting is, is not that, um, but rather that by protecting the elderly, we haven't taken into account the effect that COVID has had on younger people, i.e. it is not making them as ill, but as you have been pointing out, has had many other impacts on their lives. Would exactly. you like yeah. to comment further? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So COVID is very um, damaging for, for, for older people, uh, for, for younger people, um, not. Uh, and that's 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 very clearly the case. It is not a COVID nineteen is not a public health emergency uh, for people under the age of forty. Uh, if if the stats if the figures were like that across the board, it would not be a public health emergency. Um, and in countries like uh, Europe, well, in European countries and in America, um, the the median age of people dying of COVID is roughly the same as the life expectancy. So people are dying at about that, um, uh, uh, you know, you can see why uh, uh, it's such a, a panic in those societies, although some of these same issues do apply. But it, it, in countries where the, um, uh, uh, the life expectancy is already lower than uh, the age at which risk of COVID-19 significantly starts to increase, um, the, 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 the calculation becomes quite a different one. Um, and you know, you're, you're, you're taking away a great deal uh, from a large number of people um, for a benefit for a much smaller number of people. Um, and, and that's, you know, that is the reality of, of the situation. 
one can debate about whether one you know ought to be calculating things in this way uh, but but ultimately um it, it, you know there's very little escaping the fact that um you know the benefits you're going to get from a lockdown as an eight-year-old south african kid um is negative um and there are you know the the the, the, the the demographics of the country and of the region in general are such that um, it's just it's a very it's the youngest continent uh, in the world. Um, yeah. Thank you so much, Alex. As you've been talking, I think it has become clearer to all of us listening the importance of the philosophy of medicine, because you're really asking some philosophical questions um, about the impact of actions, um, how we see people and what we value. Um, thank you so much for spending time with us today. I think you have given us a lot to think with and really helped us to see that the COVID crisis is not just something we need to look at in terms of who is sick and who is well, but asks broader philosophical questions about our society, what we value, and to look more critically at the impact of decisions that we make. So thank you very much, Alex, for joining us. And to all the listeners, I hope you've enjoyed this program. Stay well and stay safe. The University of Johannesburg, the future reimagined.